All right, if you would open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, we're going to look at verses 9 through 27. We are in the last two books of the Bible, looking at the last looks that Jesus gives us of himself. So these are the last looks that Jesus wants you to have of him at the end of the Bible. Now, before we do that, we're going to look at some very ugly statistics. I want you to hang in there with me, but I want you to let the ugly statistics do what they're supposed to do. And that is to make you poor in spirit. And we'll explain that in a little bit. Give me another minute or two. So let's look at some ugly statistics. Here's an ugly statistic. Pornography is a 12 to 13 billion dollar year industry in America. It's $57 billion worldwide. This is more annual revenues than Coca-Cola and McDonald Douglas corporations combined. It's more revenues than all sporting franchises from football, baseball, uh, and basketball professional franchises combined. This is more revenues than than the networks of ABC, NBC, and CBS combined. The average age... I am told that the first Internet exposure to pornography is 11 years old. Daily pornographic search engine requests, 68 million. That's 25% of all search engine requests on the Internet. U.S. News & World Report says Americans now spend more money at strip clubs than at Broadway, off-Broadway, regional, nonprofit theaters, at the opera, the ballet, and jazz and classical music performances combined. According to former Education Secretary William Bennett in the Family Policy Report, America since 1960 has had a 560% increase in violent crime, 400% increase in births outside of marriage, 200% increase in teenage suicide. Divorce rates have quadrupled. Average SAT scores have dropped 80 points. Fathers' families have tripled. Now, the ugliness factor of sin isn't just out there in the world, though, is it? It's also in the church, and it's in us. And so here's some more ugly facts. Today, there's an alarming increase in pastors having to leave the ministry because of sexual addiction to pornography. In fact, in Patrick Means' book, it's called Men's Secret War, there was a confidential survey that was taken of pastors and lay leaders in the church, and 64% of them said they were struggling with sexual addiction outside their marriage evangelical pastors and lay leaders. According to recent statistics, a recent Promise Keepers event, 1996, after the event, 50% of the men were involved with pornography after the event. 53% of all Promise Keepers are said, those that would identify themselves with Promise Keepers, are addicted to pornography, they say. Pastor and rarely gifted preacher E.K. Bailey of Concord Missionary Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, he says that at their church, he knows of a church, not his church, but he knows of a church, that there was a, a major conflict between the adult Christian education classes and the rest of the church congregation. What happened was is each adult class had its own bank account, and they only tied to that church Sunday school bank account. So each class was tithing Not to the church, but their own Sunday school. And so the church mortgage was about to foreclose, and the Sunday school classes told the church and its leadership, quote, that's your problem. Do you know what the number one reason is for missionaries to leave the mission field today? 
the number one reason why missionaries leave the mission field today. It's not because of some high-handed sin that disqualifies them. And it's not because of spiritual burnout. And it's not because of spiritual hardship or discouragement from lack of fruit in the mission field. And it's not because they're lonely and they're isolated. The number one reason is personal conflict with other team members. Interpersonal sin is the number one reason missionaries leave the field. Now, so that we all feel the ugliness factor, if you would look at 21.8, there are two sins here that get all of us. Two sins that in 21.8 are said to deserve the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Most of us will look through those lists and we'll say, uh, sorcery, nope. Idolaters, depends what you mean. But how about these two? Being faithless. You know what that means? That means unbelief. That means refusing to trust in God's goodness. That means like yesterday, when you didn't get what you want, you refused to trust in God's goodness. And how do you know you didn't trust in God's goodness when you didn't get what you want? Because you got angry. You didn't get what you want. And instead of being ruled by the goodness and grace of God, you got angry because you didn't get what you want. And then you, you and I, we ended up talking about the person that was the form of that anger to somebody else. And then some of us went and ate a little more food because of it as well. How about lying? It's like when you said, I'm going to continue to pray for you, brother or sister, but you haven't even begun to pray for them yet. Lying. Or if to tell the truth would mean that you'd look bad, or to tell the truth would mean you'd get a ticket, or to tell the truth would mean you so on and so forth. And so you don't tell the truth, you lie. Or you just tell a lie in order to avoid looking bad. I hope we all begin to feel the reality of the ugliness factor of sin. It's not just out there, it's in here, and it's in our own soul. So our passage this morning is for those whom Jesus calls poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to be desperate because of sin. It means to be desperate because of sin in the world, and to be desperate because of sin in your own soul. That's what it means to be poor. It means to be Desperate because of sin. And this passage is for all of those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to look at 21, and we're going to go 9 to the end of the chapter. Now, this is a a shift from verses 1 through 8, which we'll get our bearings in a minute. But then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues. And he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. 
And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Now you interpret that. The wall was built of jasper, while the city of pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, and the seventh chrysolite. Chrysolite. The eighth, burl, the ninth, topaz, the twelfth, chrysophase, phrase. The eleventh, you get the picture. Let's move to twenty-one. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, at each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will all the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's ask God's grace to open our eyes and our hearts. Oh God, we do ask that you would do this. We acknowledge that we are very poor in spirit. That we're all desperate because of sin. Sin in the world and sin in our own souls. Our experience and our real tug of that reality in our hearts varies in its degrees. And so, Lord, we ask that you would make us poor in spirit, more so, so that we would be rich in grace. So, Lord, give help, give word, give power, give ears to hear, give eyes to see. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get our bearings in this passage. 21 and 22 are the last looks of Jesus. Now, you'll remember that we saw our first last look was God's loyal love. And in 21, 1 through 8, we saw that this loyal love had three angles or views to it. We saw that it had passion. We saw that there was presence to it. We saw there was promise to it. What we're getting now is a second last look, which is found in 9 through 27. Now, the second last look has four angles of application. In verses 9 through 10, we get the second last look. And then in verse 11, we get the first application. That's what we're going to focus on today. And then 12 through 14, 15 through 21, 21 through 27, we'll get the the next angles of application. So we're looking at the last looks that Jesus gives us in the Bible. Now, remember, the reason why we're doing this is that these last looks are enough for the church. And these last looks are enough for you. These last looks actually strengthen you. They actually save you. They actually sanctify us and move us forward where? In this present evil age. 
And that's the point. Remember in 21.4, we get this list of tears and mourning and pain and suffering and stress and distress and tribulation. Former things, as verse 4 says. Remember, the whole context of this book is between the first coming and the second coming. And, and though it sounds strange to us today because... Because many movements today have co-opted the language and misinterpreted it so much that we don't even know what it means anymore. But when you hear the words, the great tribulation, it's nothing more than the time of the church between the first coming and the second coming. Remember, we're following the pattern the gospel revelation does. First, there's humiliation, cross. Then there's exaltation, crown. And that's why Jesus says, look, is it going to be any different for you than it was for me? Now, church, my people, you will live in the age of suffering, soon to have supremacy and triumph. So the time between the first coming and the second coming is the time of this present evil age. It's the time of former things. It's the time in which this present Evil age exists and life seems to move backwards. And so Jesus has given us these looks of him in order to move us forward amidst a world going backwards in real faith in God. Genuine, authentic trusting of the Lord in real time. And that's why this book ends up doing it is it pulls back the curtain and gives a heavenly commentaries of two ages that overlap each other. They're not successive. This is not a a history book in which you're trying to locate events, but you're actually, it's a picture book in which you're to see two great realities. The reality of the age to come that's overlapping the age of this present evil world. And the age to come breaks in this present evil age by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And the church responds to it by faith. And that's how we live until we're glorified into the new heavens and the new earth. That's the grand sweep of where we're going. So today we need to look at the second last look. And we're going to look at it in verses 9 through 10, and we're going to wrap up with the first implication. So we might spend a couple weeks here. I don't know how long. Maybe we'll get them all done next week. Maybe we get one more done next week. Let's take a look at the second last look. We've got three clues to what it is. The first clue is found in verse 9, and it's a people. In verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, come up here and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And so we get a people here. We get the bride and the wife of the lamb. Now notice when we go to verse 11b, having the glory of God, here's the description of the people. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Now what we get here is a picture of what things will be. You need to remember that we're looking at a people and we're seeing that the people are being referred to as a as a bride and as a wife. And then we get a we get some characteristics of the bride and the wife and this this blinding, dazzling radiance. But notice that it's a picture of what the people will be one day in and of themselves, but are not right now in and of themselves. That's important to remember. One day you will dazzle like the light. Right now, you dazzle in the light of another. Okay? 
Right now, you get the picture of dazzling light. So you look at V11B again. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. What we're getting here is perfectly stunning. It's called perfect purity. It's a permanent holiness and happiness. It's a breathtaking beauty. It's a rare radiance. It's a stunning purity. It's blinding light. One commentator says that John is straining the limits of his hearer's experience to try to communicate a beauty that lies beyond the capacity of the first earth. That's a tremendous explanation. There's a beauty beyond the first earth that is straining the text, is straining to pull that beauty down to give you at least some taste of what it looks like. And that's why it uses these minerals and it uses these rare stones. But if you notice, it gives a similarity to what they are on earth, but then it's heightened into a crystal clarity that they don't have. Like jasper. It's more greenish. And here it's elevated to almost crystal clarity. It's even heightened beauty. So the the writer's straining to give us an ultimate beauty that's only found in another age. Now what John is seeing is a final and full, ultimate, holy humanity. And this is very important. What John is seeing is the way it's supposed to be. Now, what you and I need to remember and need to get straight right now is do not make the mistake of thinking that it's going back to the way it was with Adam. It's not going back to what was lost in Adam. It's going back to what Adam was supposed to be. Major difference. Adam, as you recalled, was sitting between a corruptibility and a confirmed righteousness. We'll call the confirmed righteousness a permanent holiness and happiness. He didn't have that. He had integrity. He was made in the image of God. He was good, in fact, very good. But he was between a choice of corruptibility or permanent holiness and happiness. He was on trial. In fact, one theologian puts this prior to the fall. Humanity in Adam was neither sinful nor confirmed in righteousness. In other words, not permanent in holiness and happiness. He was on trial. Would he follow his covenant Lord's pattern of working and resting, subduing and reigning? Or would he go his own way and seek his own good apart from God's word? Do you see the picture here? What we're doing is the text is actually moving us beyond the first Adam. Beyond the first Adam into what Adam was supposed to be. He was supposed to be perfectly holy, permanently holy, and permanently happy. If he would have obeyed, he would have been confirmed in a permanent state of holiness and happiness. And the picture we're getting here is, that's you and me now. One day. How did you get there? How did I get there? And we know there had to be a second Adam that had to do what the first Adam didn't do. So do not make the mistake of thinking, oh, in heaven, we're just going to get what Adam lost. No, it's much more than that. You get what Adam was supposed to be. What Adam should have been. And it took a second Adam to get us there. Okay? All right. This dazzling light pervades John's description, doesn't it? Why does it do that? Well, we get the answer at the beginning of 11. Look at 11a. Having the glory of God. This is a tremendous picture. Those of us that have been tracking through Revelation, remember in chapter 4, we got a picture of the, the high throne room, the one who sits on the throne of heaven and earth. 
It's like John, again, God was taking him up into heaven and showing him the reality of the heavenly host, the invisible heavens. And remember, there was concentric circles of beauty and glory. And the one who was on the throne was unimaginable in brilliance and beauty and radiance and light. And then you move to the first circle of creatures, and it was this praetorium guard of God's throne. No unholiness would come in. These four heavenly creatures made sure of it. They were dazzling and beautiful themselves. And then we moved outside to another concentric circle, and we got those 24 thrones and the 24 elders sitting on the 24 thrones. Again, whiter than white. In fact, the the Greek word is that the white is whiter than white. How do you get a word like that? It's whiter than white. That's all we can say. It's so white you can't even see it. It's whiter than white. Tremendous description. And now what we get here is another concentric circle, which is a holy people. In other words, the glory of God is radiating and emanating and becomes the holiness of the people themselves. John is painting a picture of what you and I and all God's people will be like one day is that the glory of God's radiance will actually be the substance of our worth and will actually be permanently reflecting that beauty. Ultimate holiness. In fact, John, which I'm so thankful he does, he propositions this picture in one of his letters. He says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. Notice what he's saying. Beloved. Right now, you are God's children. You are. That's a fact. So you are the bride. You are the wife of the Lamb. But he goes on to say, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. Because the glory of God will so permeate everything that we will finally reflect Him the way we were meant to do in permanent holiness and happiness. Dazzling light is how you're described. All right, so the first clue is a people. The second clue is a place. Look at verse 10. John's carried away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed a holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Now, what's so breathtaking about this is his view. It's tremendous. What's happening is this is a parallel between chapter 17, and we'll get to that in a minute. But in chapter 17, there are same words, same structure, same spirit, same angel, same lookout point, except a different place. In chapter 17, the spirit takes the person to the wilderness or to the desert. And here the spirit takes John to a high mountain, a high and great mountain. And what happens at this great mountain is that we get... Well, we find out in Ezekiel that there was another high and great mountain. And you know when that was? In the garden. In actual Ezekiel 28, the Garden of Eden, within the Garden of Eden, there contained a great high mountain. And that mountain contained all the minerals and jewels that are listed further on in this chapter. Isn't that interesting? And now at the end of all things, this great high mountain is back. 
And what the great high mountain in the garden and what the great high mountain at the end of all things is symbolizing here, it's where God met with man in a place. It's actually heaven touching earth and meeting. It is a a God with a people in a place. Now we know when Adam sinned, what happened? The praetorium guard were there. The cherubim and the seraphim with the flaming sword forbidding entrance back to this holy place. Right? And all of a sudden, it seemed like heaven and earth had now separated forever and the heavens were shut. And that's why John is absolutely amazed when a doorway opens up into heaven and he's called into the heavenly throne room. Now, throughout the Old Testament, though, we get previews of a place again where God would meet with his people in a place. They knew that there was a high mountain because Ezekiel tells us that in the garden. But then there's previews that God meets with the people in a place. And we get the ark and then we get the tabernacle and then we get the temple. And through the temple, we get the city called Jerusalem, right? All previews until the coming attraction that all these previews were pointing to, the feature film finally arrives and we get John saying the incarnation is when the Word became flesh. And what did He do? He tabernacled among us. You get heaven and earth meeting again in a person. And so what this great high mountain is pointing to is this new Jerusalem is coming down and it's so massive in its dimensions that there's no way to actually measure it. And that's the point. It's beyond measure because what's happening is in this picture is a new place is being established. It's a glorified place with a glorified people and it's coming from God and it's so new that heaven, Revelation chapter 4, that heavenly view is now Moving and it's actually touching the earth in such a way that heaven and earth are united into a larger reality called the new heavens and the new earth. And it's absolutely breathtaking that God has a people and he puts them in a place. Now, the third clue gives us our second last look, and that's found at the beginning of 11, and that is we have God's presence. So what we get here, here's our second last look. His permanent presence with his people in his place. That's our second last look. You got a permanent presence with his people in his place. Okay? Now, why does God want you to see this? Why is this so important for you to see something that's yet to be? Now, remember, this book is written for real life Christians, Christians that are being persecuted, Christians that are getting seen pictures of what's taking place in this earth's realm, but also in the heavenly realms. In fact, you're given pictures of dragons and beasts and false prophets and harlots, all to give you a commentary behind the scenes of what's happening in these two Ages as they run side by side through each other between the first coming and the second coming. These two overlapping ages and you get heavenly views and you get earthly views, but it's written for the ones on earth. It's written to the seven churches. 
It's in picture book form, but it's, it's rooted in the real life stuff of, I'm struggling to believe in God this morning. You pick one of those seven churches and you see that they're struggling with the ugliness of sin factor. In the world, but also how it's gotten into the church and how it's in their own soul. And it's real life stuff of, I really, I don't know if I can make it tomorrow, all honestly. I don't know if I have the strength and I don't know if I have the courage and I don't know if I have the guts to trust God anymore. It's this kind of Christian that this book is written to. So what is God doing? I mean, what is Jesus doing? Is he so heavenly minded that there's no earthly good for this message? What's taking place? This is a This is a future faith direction that's supposed to be significant in a present faith reality. Why is that? So what's supposed to be happening here? Why is this so significant for you to see? Here's the answer, then we'll illustrate it. The answer is because when you're poor in spirit, when you are poor in spirit, in other words, when you are desperate because of sin in the world and sin in your own soul, you need to see the future grace that's coming for you. Isn't that why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit? Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you are desperate because of sin in the world and desperate because of sin in your soul, you need to know the future grace that's coming for you. Now. This is finally getting to me. Lieutenant Lyle Buck said to himself, he's now been captured by the Germans in the Battle of the Bulge, and it's now been four months. He was dying. He was down to 114 pounds. That's a great way that the Germans took care of our American soldiers. Starving him to death, his body was racked with wounds. He was being ravaged by hepatitis. He knew he was down to a day, maybe two at the most. The irony of all ironies, though, is Patton had just bursted through the gates of his prison camp and he was going to die before he was rescued, he thought to himself. There were thousands and thousands of POWs that needed to be processed and he knew he wouldn't be found in time. It was just before midnight, though, when Buck thought he heard someone calling out his name. Then he heard it and it was unmistakable. Buck! Lieutenant Lyle Buck. And with whatever strength he had left, he slowly got to his feet, a walking skeleton of skin and bones, hobbled to the door, walked out to the darkness, and there he saw him. And this is what the historian documents. The man he respected more than any other who had been something of a father figure as well as his first mentor had arrived at the 11th hour to save his life. It was his commanding officer, Major Robert Chris, found him, came for him at the 11th hour. Brothers and sisters, we live in the 11th hour in this present evil age. We're poor in sin. We're poor in spirit. 
We're desperate in sin all around us, and we're desperate because there's sin in our own soul. And you and I need to know that Jesus is coming for us. And when he comes, he's going to make you permanently holy and permanently happy. Forever. And that means there's no more dominating, demanding desires at war in your soul. If you haven't felt that war, you don't know what I'm talking about. In other words, I want you to think about whatever the last sin that you just had. And it's probably in this building. And I want you to think about how powerful it was. I want you to think about how powerful the pull was, almost as if it was irresistible. That's the power of sin. And I want you to think about how that dominating desire that got you, and it could have been a good desire. It could have been a desire for food, which is a good thing. It could have been a desire to be respected, which is a good thing. It could have been a desire to be loved, which is a good thing. It could have been a desire to have a good marriage, which is a good thing. It could have been a desire to learn how to love another person, which is a good thing. It could be a desire for true sexual intimacy within a marriage, which is a good thing. But then that desire actually grows to a domination, a ruling, a controlling, a mastery of you, and it turns into a craving, and you carve an idol out of it. And your craving leads to a carving and leads to a conforming. You start becoming like it. And if you know what it's like to be demanding your desires... Because you see what you do and you don't get it. One day that will be gone. There will be no more pull to be dominated by good things anymore. To exchange the creator for the creation anymore. There will be no more pull for counterfeit pleasures like pornography anymore. And all the ravages of sin in our society and within our own hearts anymore. No more pull. It will be gone. There will be no more small and inconsistent desires for God and His pleasures. No more failing to trust God. No more failing to worship Him. No more failing to, gosh, I wish I just had something in my heart for Him. No more of that stuff. There will be no more cravings of the world anymore. It will all be gone. Now, when we begin to realize that He's actually coming for us and He's going to permanently make us holy and happy, if you burn that picture and hang it on the... Let's just use a different picture, not burning. Let's use this. Take this picture of Jesus coming for you and making you permanently holy and happy. You got the picture? Commander, officer, lieutenant, or commanding officer, Major Chris, coming at the last second. Take that picture. And if you go into your heart and your mind and hang that picture on the wall of the imagination in your mind and your heart, and that picture hangs there, that picture becomes enabling power in the present 
for you to resist sin. The picture that Jesus is coming for you, the truth that Jesus is coming for you to make you permanently holy and happy, the reason why it's in this book is so that it will help you resist sin now in this present evil age. Now let's go back to the parallel between 17 and 21 here. What happens in 17? In 17 we have the, the introduction of the harlot, the Babylonian harlot. I'll use the more literary appropriate word and not the vernacular. All right. And in that scene, you have an angel, one of the seven angels with the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And that angel takes John and carries him away, actually summons and says, come up here, John, and I will show you what you will see. But instead of seeing a beautiful bride, he sees this Babylonian harlot and we get tremendous contrasting pictures instead of radiance and glory and beauty and brilliance, we get ugliness and seduction and sinister sin. And what's meant to happen in the sameness of the structure is to highlight the major differences between them. And the major difference is this. The Babylonian harlot is a fake, counterfeit people of God. It's a fake church which has fake worship. And the church has true worship. And the point is this. One is the lamb's bride, the other is the beast's harlot. And now all the counterfeits have come together, all the pictures. Remember, God's counterfeited by Satan himself, which is the dragon. Jesus is counterfeited by Satan's creation or Satan's son, the beast. And remember what the beast was? It was coercive demon-energized political power that persecutes the church. Remember that? And then you have the Holy Spirit being counterfeited by the false prophet because the Holy Spirit is the author of God's Word, the author of inspiration, the author of true teaching, the author of words of life, and the false prophet is, is a counterfeit Holy Spirit that produces false teachers and false teaching. And now we have the last counterfeit. You have the people of God, the church, the lamb, the wife of the bride, and the fake church is the Babylonian harlot. And in there, the Babylonian harlot and counterfeiting the church brings all the world's worship at our doorstep. All the world's cravings that are also the cravings of our own sinful nature. And all of a sudden, you've got warped, distorted, twisted worship Sex, money, lust, power, fame, prestige, more stuff. Counterfeit pleasures, counterfeit joys, empty promises of success and happiness in life, empty, distorted, warped worldviews of worship. Living for earthly treasures, right? But what happens, because this is put here to parallel the Babylonian harlot, the false worship, is that when you're in the midst of sin, to know that he's coming for you with a permanent holiness and a permanent happiness, there's a pressing in of power to enable you and teach you to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. 
That's why it's here. That's why this last look is here. There's something about knowing that Jesus is coming for you, that picture on your imagination, that he's coming for you and he's bringing you permanent holiness and he's bringing you permanent happiness, that he's going to take away all sin and make you healthy and whole, and he's going to give you solid joys and solid happiness, that that actually presses in a power that strengthens you to say no to ungodliness, to the world's worship, and yes to the Lord. Okay. So when you're in the midst of the worldly worship war in your soul and the choices between sin and a Savior, you're in the midst of it. The bullets are flying. The war is going on in your soul. Will you be dominated by this desire? Will it rule you and master you and control you? Will this craving turn to a carving, turn to conforming to it? Make this last look count. Jesus is coming for you. And he will make you permanently holy and permanently happy. Amen.